World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. From building tactical bat houses to activism around one very old mulberry tree, it's clear that Britain has chokingly restrictive planning laws. We ask why cities can't grow outward or upward and how one tree can prevent hundreds of new homes. And earlier this month, an advisory group warned diners to avoid eating Atlantic lobster for fear that fishing lines could entangle endangered whales. Maine's lobstermen are furious and worried that their industry might also be endangered. First up, though. The city of Zaporizhia, home to Ukraine's largest nuclear power plant, came under heavy Russian shelling yesterday. In the ruins of what was once an apartment complex, emergency services looked for survivors. Local people described how heavy explosions had blown out their windows. These attacks on civilian areas come after territorial gains by Ukrainian forces that are at times hard to believe. Once again, there are worries that Russian President Vladimir Putin will lash out. Last night, President Joe Biden said there's a direct threat of nuclear weapons use for the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And Ukraine just keeps pushing the front back. On September 30th, Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, announced the annexation of large parts of Ukraine. He said that these would become Russian territory, part of Russia, to be defended by all available means. Almost as soon as he said that, Russian territory began shrinking dramatically. Shashank Joshi is our defense editor. Ukraine's army has been making very impressive advances as part of its two counteroffensives in both east and the south. And they have been smashing through Russian lines in some very impressive and dramatic ways. So lay out a bit of the, the geography for me here. Where, where are the battle lines now? Well, if listeners just think of the map of Ukraine for a minute, the front line is enormous. It stretches, if you think about the active front line, from Donbass in the east of the country, that I think we have a rough sense of where it is by now after seven months of discussing this war. And it arcs all the way down to the Black Sea, to the city of Kherson, which is on the the mouth of the Dnipro River as it goes into the Black Sea. And what we're seeing is Ukraine making substantial advances on either side of that front line, either end of that front line, what we call the Russian flanks, the, the left flank in Kherson and the right flank in Donbass. So we've seen Ukrainian forces roll into Liman, which is a very important town in Donetsk province, right on the edge of Luhansk province, and the two together make up Donbass. And 
we're seeing them push ever further east, making those Russian forces retreat back to these defensive lines, which are coming under really serious pressure. And in Kherson, in the south, we saw Ukrainian units push about 12 miles behind enemy lines all along the Dnipro River, squeezing those Russian forces back against the river towards Kherson city. And they're still pushing on. In fact, you know, the front lines are changing so fast, Jason, that things we say now are not always valid in a few hours. But the upshot of all of this is that Russia is losing lots of territory in the east and in the West. And these are substantial gains for Ukraine. We're really looking uh, at a situation of the Russian lines collapsing in places. And how is it that things are moving as fast as this? I think there's two things. In the East, these are areas that Russia had held, but not always very strongly, right? So the momentum they acquired from taking over Kharkiv province in the northeast a few weeks ago, that has continued through. And the Russians have pulled back and back. But the people manning these units are not always the best. In Kherson, it's a little bit different. Russia actually has some of its very best units in Kherson, particularly the VDV, the Russian airborne forces that are much better trained than the kind of ragtag militia and National Guard units that you see in a lot of the East. But the problem that they have is that they're in an unviable position, right? They're they're on the west bank of the Dnipro River. Ukraine has been taking out the main bridges over that river, so they can't get ammunition, they can't get other supplies. And what you're seeing is kind of a potential pincer movement by Ukraine, which is going to trap thousands upon thousands of forces on that side of the river. There are about 20,000 in total. And how far do you think the, the, the momentum can carry Ukraine at this point? The Ukrainian advance is still going. So some people think that you could see a complete rout of Russia in Luhansk province, which would be humiliating because this was the province, Jason, they captured at great cost back in the summer, as we discussed on the show a number of times. We talked about the town of Severodonetsk. Ukrainian forces are not very far away from a town like Severodonetsk now. It would be humiliating if Russia lost it. Having said that, I will emphasize that Ukrainian forces have now been on the offensive for a month. This is very tiring. This is very demanding of ammunition and and fuel and other supplies. And above all, winter is coming. You know, when winter comes in Ukraine, it can be really forbidding. As the ground gets muddy, Ukrainian tanks are not going to be able to go off-road. As they get confined to roads, the Russians will be able to ambush them and hit them with artillery more effectively, just like the Ukrainians did north of Kiev back in February and March. And so the war is kind of going to slow down over the winter season. And then what becomes absolutely critical is how each side fares over the winter and which side uses that time to come out more strongly in the spring. But for now, anyway, the advantage seems to be squarely with Ukraine. How is that going down inside Russia? It's being viewed with some alarm, I would say. I think we're seeing rifts within Vladimir Putin's circle. If you look at, for example, two close henchmen of his, Ramzan Kadyrov, he's a, the warlord who runs Chechnya, the, the province in the south. And you look at Yevgeny Prigozhin, who heads a force that we've talked about a great deal, the Wagner Group, the group of pro-Kremlin mercenaries. They have both been attacking Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister, whose position is under threat. They've also been attacking Valery Gerasimov, the, the chief of the general staff. In fact, what we saw from a Russian-installed official, the deputy head of the annexed Kherson province, basically said that Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister, should consider suicide. These disagreements are bursting into the open in Russia. And, you know, if I was Sergei Shoigu, I, I would definitely not get too close to any windows these days. 
So given that being on the back foot on the battlefield and uh, all of this disquiet at home, how do you think Russian forces will respond? The immediate priority is to get their defensive lines stabilized. And I mean literally stabilized, like digging trenches and and, and making sure they're not on the run as, as the Ukrainians advance at a rapid clip. The priority is getting these mobilized recruits in to fix the manpower problems. Some of the recruits are already arriving, but they're arriving with extremely limited training, very low morale. So I'm not sure it's going to make a difference. In the meantime, I think we're seeing a kind of crude response, which is to try and shock Ukraine and hit back by punitive strikes. So, for instance, on Thursday, we saw five people killed in the city of Zaporizhia, which is not far from the, the nuclear power plant we've spoken about before. And it hit residential buildings. And we, we've seen these similar attacks on things like dams, reservoirs, power stations. I think we're going to see an escalation of these kind of punitive attacks on critical infrastructure. But one thing that we keep talking about each time uh, Russia seems to be at a, at a real disadvantage is the possibility of the, the use of nuclear weapons. Certainly, President Biden mentioned it yesterday, saying that the risk was the highest since the Cuban Missile Crisis. What do you make of that risk at this moment? I think that the risk has to be taken seriously, but I do worry a little bit that when the U.S. president makes these kind of statements, it, it slightly plays into the Kremlin's messaging, which is to frighten us, to frighten Americans, to frighten Europeans at this moment of danger as Ukraine tries to take its territory back, but territory that the Russians have defined as part of Russia, and that we need to stay calm, we need to, we need to stay cool, whilst appreciating that there are serious risks. I think Cuba is an interesting analogy because, you know, yes, Cuba was a moment of profound danger, but it was a different era. You had profound risk of miscalculation, this crisis, to me, is very different. There is very low risk of accidental nuclear use. I think the bigger risk is really one man, Mr. Putin, deciding to use nuclear weapons to try and shock his adversaries into uh, stopping, into trying to halt the bleeding in Ukraine. So I think Cuba in 1962 can give us whatever lessons you like. If you're a hawk, you can say it tells you about the importance of standing firm. If you're a dove, you can point to the compromises that ended the conflict. You know, I, I'm careful that we, we ought not to abuse the analogy too much. But the risks are ultimately real, and they're real because Russia is now losing this war, and that is a really dangerous situation to be in. Shashank, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much, Jason. Xi Jinping is the most powerful man in the world, and a big mystery. I'm Su Lin Wong, host of The Prince, a new podcast from The Economist. It's the real story of China's leader, his traumatic childhood, his rise through a brutal regime, and the lessons he learned. Now, he wants to reshape the world. To understand what's next, you need to know where he came from. Listen to The Prince from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Recently, I went with one of our producers, William Warren, 
to Bethnal Green in East London on the search for what turns out to be a controversial mulberry tree. I do not see the tree. I don't think that is the tree. Shall I show you a picture of the tree? <laughs> so we like so I identify the tree in a lineup. <laughs> Sorry, so you don't happen to work here, do you? What do you want? Uh, we're trying to have a look at the mulberry tree. We're journalists. We're doing a story on it. Just wondering if that was possible. We we just want a quick look. Sir, yes. quick question. Yes. Just wanted a quick look at the mulberry tree that's in here. We can't let you in because you need to get permission from the council. Okay. You need to get permission from the council. But there's some story connecting it to flats that were supposed to be built here, right? Yes. Um, before the, Initially, they had the intention to move it, but it has been cancelled. So it's not going to be moved. They won't temper with it. It will be left the way it is. I'm just wondering how much the tree has to do with it not being flats. <laughs> That's what I can't say, but all I know is that the tree is very, very important. Important enough to stop the building of new flats? Of course. Of course. It's like when you have a, a, um, something that's valuable to a community or to the society, you don't touch it. You don't touch it. It's historic. The problem with the mulberry tree was that it's a rather small, mangy, but quite old tree that has stopped 291 flats being built. And that's mainly because the council, when they were giving planning permission for this block of flats, didn't quite give the right permission to remove this tree not even chop it down, just to move it elsewhere on the block of flats. And that means the entire development was blocked. And then the developer gave up, and now no new flats have been built. Duncan Robinson is our political editor and writes Badget, our column on British politics. The upshot of it is that Britain can't build. The biggest problem is with housing. We don't build enough houses for our population. And we have far fewer houses per head than, say, France. So in Britain, there's 434 homes per thousand people. In France, it's close to 600. But it's not just housing. We don't build enough power stations. We don't build enough railways. We don't even build enough roads. We haven't built a reservoir since, I think, 1991. And the last time we built a nuclear power station was in 1995. And it's all part of the same problem. Okay, then tell me more about the problem. Pretty much every city in the UK is surrounded by something called a green belt, which is a patch of land that you're not allowed to build on. And the idea is to stop cities from sprawling out, so it stops London from becoming Dallas. And it covers about 13% of England's landmass. The problem with green belts is that they throttle cities, is that they make it much harder to build, and you can't really expand a city outwards. But we've also got quite strict planning rules, which means you can't really build them upwards. And so they can't really expand, they can't grow, and Britain's poor as a result. But how did this problem get this bad? The main issue is that building isn't particularly popular. There are lots of people, call them NIMBYs, not in my backyard, people who don't want to see whether it's a house built near them or a wind turbine or a power station or a railway line cut through near their homes. And they're empowered by a system that allows them to block things. So to build something, you need permission from local government, for instance, even if it's just like quite a small house. And local government people are elected, and they're often elected on very, very small majorities. And that means if you have a small organized campaign, that can really put the frighteners on councillors. And so you do end up with this sort of bias towards things not being built. And so on top of that, there's a lot of regulators who have quite narrow remits. So that could be anything to do with Natural England, who are in charge of making sure that there's not nitrates in river, and it could even be due to 
with legislation aimed at protecting bats or something quite specific like that. And these things do all work in individual. Like nobody wants to pump pollution into a river. Nobody wants to unnecessarily kill bats. But they add up and it does make it very, very difficult to build. That's the level of things that we're at, that the presence or absence of a bat can make the difference between planning permission or no. It can make things a lot more difficult. So if there's likely to be bats there, then you have to have a bat survey. You have to have four people turn up with night vision cameras, stand there for a few nights counting, literally counting the bats flying out and drawing a little diagram of where the bats are flying. It's an unautomated process put it that way. And that can be expensive. So that means there's a big new railway being built in the UK, which is lined with bat houses. But these aren't like a sort of small bird box size house. These are like full sized houses for adults, but they are for bats. You hear anecdotes about people like installing bat houses next door to a development in order to sort of attract bats to make things sort of slightly harder and make things take longer. But they also use the law to the full extent. So they will raise money to have a judicial review of a decision made by a council. If the council say, we agree to build X many houses here. So NIMBYs will raise a lot of money, say £20,000 on a crowdfunder, and then they'll hire a top barrister, someone who's very, very expensive, and they'll do their best to block the application on procedural grounds. And they often succeed. But why do you think they care so very much? Why so protective of my backyard? It's completely rational to be protective of your backyard. Like nobody wants to live next to a building site for a few years. Nobody wants to have their view of the lovely countryside blocked. It is just annoying to have things put near you. And if you have the tools to block something, why wouldn't you? And also there's been a lot of bad things built in Britain in the 20th century. You can walk around a city centre in, say, Birmingham, and it's basically ruined by town planners in the 50s and 60s. And you go around a sort of housing estate in the edge of some towns, and they're often not very pretty places to be. So again, they have every reason to try and block them. But that creates a huge problem in that just things fundamentally do not get built. So how to break the impasse? The best way would be to wipe out lots of the legislation that's already there, go for a less decision-based and more rules-based system. So you just have a sort of form of zoning. You say what can be built where roughly, but you don't individually approve each one. That would be a big improvement. But it feels very politically unlikely. Well, on that, Britain, as of recently, has a new prime minister. Do you have a sense that she wants to upset the status quo? She says she does. So planning reform is sort of near the top of her list, but planning reform is politically very, very difficult to do. So Boris Johnson tried this in 2020, and Boris Johnson was elected on this sort of mantra of build, build, build. He wanted to cut a lot of ribbons, effectively. And he had an 80-seat majority at that time. He was at the height of his political powers. And still, Conservative MPs rebelled. They shot down the idea because they frankly hate the idea of things being built in their constituency. Bluntly, they're doing that because that's what they think their voters want, and they're probably right. But at what point then did those shortfalls of reservoirs, of energy sources, of housing become politically more toxic than simply building more stuff? We could be close to a moment like that, because it, it, it has just been a while since there's been blackouts in the UK. It has been a while since someone switched on a tap and nothing came out. Basically, things will have to get worse before they get better. Duncan, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Lobster is a seafood delicacy loved by many, and maybe nowhere else in the world is that love more on display than in Maine, as I saw myself on a recent trip on a demonstration lobster vessel. Rosemary Ward covers the northeastern United States for The Economist. Lobster is in no small sense the lifeblood of the region. 
The crustacean forms a huge part of the state's identity. The main car license plates even feature a large image of a big red lobster on them. Everyone seems to be wearing lobster clothes, belts, sweatshirts. And that identity is a key industry and source of jobs for the state. But that may be under threat. And why is that now under threat, Rosemary? Well, last month, the Atlantic lobster was put on something called the seafood watch list as an avoid, which is a red listing. The seafood watch list is a program by California's Monterey Bay Aquarium, which advises consumers and businesses on what marine life to eat sustainably. And the addition of the Atlantic lobster to their avoid list was a huge surprise and very upsetting to the people who rely on lobster for their living in Maine, where it's a huge part of the economy. So why did Monterey Bay Aquarium add it to its red list? Well, their reasoning is that the lobster fishing lines can entangle the endangered North Atlantic right whale. But the lobster industry pushes back on this. They say they have not had an incident with a right whale in almost two decades. And those in the industry truly pride themselves on sustainability. They call themselves stewards of the resource, something which became really clear to me when I spoke to Jeff Holden who was the first licensed lobster processor in Maine and has been a veteran of the industry for nearly four decades. We've been big promoters of the resource, the sustainability, the traceability, and all those things that we considered important. This particular species is healthy, it's not overfished, it's humanely caught. So what is Seafood Watch's argument? Well, they say it's not enough. The North Atlantic right whale is in danger of extinction. There's fewer than 250 in the ocean right now. And fishing gear is a big part of the problem. According to one study, over 80% of surviving whales have scars showing they've been entangled at least once in fishing gear. But the fishing men in Maine say it's not because of them. And there's no documentation showing whale deaths linked to them in the last few decades. But it's not just Seafood Watch that has concerns. The National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, it's the federal agency responsible for fishing. And they've been working with the main lobster industry. And they recognize that the lobstermen have been proactive and doing everything they can to react to new regulations. But they also say there's much more to be done. And they recently put out a roadmap for reducing risk, which includes transitioning to ropeless traps. But these ropeless traps are bound to be very costly. And there is a chance these additional regulations could significantly impact supply. So, Ro, I understand there are some people in this world who have unfortunately never been to Maine. For their sake, can you explain how lobster fishing works? Well, I got to see it firsthand. So, this is a typical Maine lobster trap. As you can tell, the seagulls are well... So, the lobster trap is on the ocean floor, attached to a floating buoy with a purple rope that they call a line. And then the same rope is pulled up to access the traps and retrieve the lobsters. And this is the line that's supposedly causing problems for the right whales. And what about the sustainability part of lobstering? Well, in terms of what they're already doing, when the lobstermen pull up their catch, they measure each lobster. back has to be three and a quarter inches. The lobster must have a length on along its back of three to five inches. Everything else, anything bigger or smaller, is tossed back into the water. And this is to help ensure the breeding population. Also, pregnant females are marked with a V so that other fishermen know not to harvest them. So if I'm ever caught with eggs, I get a V, cut V notch right here. This announces to every fisherman who ever catches this lobster from now on that this is a free-for-life lobster. And they're put back, back in. in the water. They've also reduced the number of traps. 
And to the point of contention, the line since 1997, over 30,000 miles, 48,000 kilometers of rope have been removed by lobster fishermen. And they've also introduced weak leaks in their line so that whales can break through and break free easily. And also in Maine, the lines are uniquely marked so they can be traced back to the state if the line does cause problems. So lobstermen who've invested thousands of dollars in recent years have argued that they're more proactive with protecting the whales than Seafood Watch is giving them credit for. So how could this red listing affect Maine's lobster industry? Well, this industry is a big deal in Maine. And most of the lobstermen, they're like family-operated small businesses. And the whole lobster supply chain in Maine contributes about $1 billion a year to the state economy. About 12,000 people work in the industry, and that includes lobstermen, dealers, and processors. So if the industry collapses, entire coastal towns that live off the tourist industry could be at risk. And thousands of small businesses and families could suffer. But at least for now, the traps are still burning in the water. You guys ready? You're going to put your hands here and give it the biggest shove. Three, two, one. Rosemary, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, John. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Chris Impey. Our senior producers are Sam Westron, Jad Gill, and John Joe Devlin. Our producers are Rory Galloway, Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and Kevin Kaners. Stevie Hertz is our U.S. audio correspondent. Our creative producer is William Warren. And our sound engineer is Will Rowe. We'll all see you back here on Monday. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.